Every year on Memorial Day, an odd-looking group gathers in a little cemetery near downtown Honolulu. There are public officials, members of the Royal Order of Kamehameha, curious onlookers, and a handful of men dressed in Civil War uniforms. They stand around a small gravestone covered in lace. The gravestone is shiny and new, but the name and date on it are old. J.R. Kealoha, died 1873. No one at the gathering is related to J.R. Kealoha. No one knows when he was born, what his full name was, or even how he died. What they do know is that he was Native Hawaiian and a veteran of the American Civil War. Oh, I'm getting choked up. Nanette Napoleon is a local historian who spent years searching for clues about Native Hawaiian men who fought in the Civil War. It's one of those long-forgotten stories in our history, and so I get the same response all the time. Wow! What? People from Hawaii served in the Civil War? What? How did that happen? And then they get very curious, you know. From Honolulu Civil Beat, this is Offshore. Stories from Hawaii. I'm Ku'u Ka'uanoe. This is episode three of our fourth season, Far From Home. This season, we're taking a deep dive into the Hawaiian diaspora and trying to figure out why Hawaiians are leaving the islands today. But before we explore what's happening right now, we need to understand what drew Hawaiians away from home in the past. And while we've spent a lot of time at Offshore examining how the Western world has impacted Hawaii's history, this season, we're flipping that around. We're going to look at the unexpected ways that people from Hawaii have changed U.S. history. This is the story of Hawaii's sons of the Civil War. For over 35 years now, I've been a local historian. Most of those 35 years have been focused on um, studying old graveyards. Two decades ago, Nanette was in the State Library looking through old newspapers on microfilm when she discovered something unexpected. I came across an article written by son of a missionary. He's serving as an officer in a black troops, colored troops, and he runs across two Hawaiians in his camp. I just was stunned that, what, Hawaiians were in the Civil War? How can this be, right? Never heard that story before. Nanette copied the article and put it in an empty binder in her home office. It was the start of something of an obsession. So now we're in my office and we're looking at um, two large file cabinets containing a total of one, two, three, four, five, ten long drawers, big drawers that have hundreds of files that have something to do with Hawaii and the Civil War, whether it's peoples, battles. Today, she has 25 different binders full of Civil War documents. And each piece of paper represents hours and hours of research because the paper trail is thin. When Native Hawaiians enlisted in the Army or the Navy, recruiter asked them, what's your name? My name is Kamakavivole. No, your name is John Boy. Next guy. Nope, sorry, your name is John Boy. That's how the names get put down. 
And so nobody knows who John Boy really, their real name is. So therefore, I can't trace him. It's incredibly frustrating. And so the only thing Nanette can do is comb through old military recruitment records and muster rolls. It will list a registered name, place of birth, which always says the Sandwich Islands. What tips off that this is a Hawaiian versus a Haole person is it says color of hair, dark, color of eyes, dark. But the most important thing is color of complexion. Today, Hawaii is known for its racial diversity. But in the 1860s, a man born in the Sandwich Islands with dark hair, dark eyes, and dark skin is a Native Hawaiian. Over the years, Nanette has identified more than 120 Native Hawaiians who served in the Civil War. But a bigger question is why they chose to fight. And to understand that, we have to look back to the years before the Civil War, when hundreds of Hawaiian men were leaving the islands. In the 1840s and 50s, Hawaii was the epicenter of the whaling industry. Before sugar, whaling was Hawaii's main economic driver. By the 1860s, hundreds of whaling ships a year were coming into Honolulu Harbor, many from America. This was a big transitionary period for the kingdom itself, transitioning from self-sufficiency to Western economic values and trade systems and everything. So Hawaiians became disenfranchised and had to leave their subsistence lifestyle to make a living, which caused tremendous hardships for many, many Hawaiians. So that's one of the main reasons Hawaiians ended up going on these ships bound for who knows where. We don't have reflections from these men written in their own words. We have their names, well, parts of their names, and they appear in the backgrounds of white men's stories. A passage of Moby Dick, a ship captain's letter, a newspaper where Kanaka is spelled with a C, not a K. So all we can do is imagine what it must have been like for a Hawaiian man to step foot in Massachusetts in the mid-19th century. We can imagine what it was like to see the ocean, something you've only ever known as welcoming and warm and crystal blue, suddenly turn dark gray and cold and biting. We can imagine what it must have been like to step onto a dock with ice in the harbor and burly bearded men barking orders at you, giving you a new name like John Sailor or Joseph Kanaka or simply Johnny Boy. As you walk deeper into the city, you meet other men with skin just a little darker than yours who tell you about chains and about auctions. Around shared meals at a boarding house, you'll learn that the faces you see around you in this strange place, Chinese and Filipino and Wampanoag and Nigerian, are not so welcome further south. You're probably a skilled sailor and you came all this way for the paycheck. But being here and learning that slavery, which is illegal in Hawaii, is legal in some parts of this country, sends a chill down your spine that's much colder than the icy air. Once the Civil War started, many Hawaiians found themselves stuck, stranded in eastern whaling ports. Before the Civil War broke out, the United States didn't have a very large naval fleet. 
So what they did was took over, by kind of like eminent domain, merchant ships and whale ships and converted them to warships. How were the sailors supposed to get home? They weren't given much of a choice. You could leave the ship where you live and be homeless. Or you can sign here on the dotted line. And my guess is that being thousands and thousands of miles from their real home in the Hawaiian Islands, they chose to stay on because they didn't want to be homeless and with the penniless. But not all Hawaiian soldiers were in it for the money. Others were dedicated to ending slavery. Those men, when they signed up, they knew what they were getting into. A, a real mess. That's Anita Manning. She's now one of the forefront scholars on Hawaiians in the Civil War. But she only really started researching the topic at her friend Edna's insistence. She said she was being poked at by her ancestors who were coming and telling her, nobody knows about us. We, we were in this, and they need to know. And anybody who's been tasked, if I can use that word, by an uh, elder Hawaiian Chinese lady, you eventually do exactly what they tell you to. And that's, that was Andy Edna in the nicest way. Years of research later, the topic is now a passion for Anita as well. And she says that, yeah, some Native Hawaiians may have joined because they needed a paycheck. But Hawaii also followed the war closely. One of the reasons that I say people knew what they were getting into is because Hawaii was very much the commercial crossroads for international sea traffic, which meant there was international news coming in on newspapers from around the world. And the abolition of slavery was a big deal to a lot of people in the islands. There was this whole mindset that looked on slavery as a bad thing many of the Hawaiians would have been hearing sermons against slavery and things like that. And it can't have been lost on them that the slaves looked more like them than they did other people. Anita's favorite newspaper article from the time is about a ship preparing to attack a Confederate fort. When the captain called for volunteers to storm Fort Fisher, four swarthy Sandwich Islanders stepped forward. Those are his words. <laughs> and of course, that meant Hawaiians. Now, you don't step forward when <laughs> they call for volunteers to attack uh, a embedded fort, unless you're committed to what the cause is. If you're just in it for a paycheck, you slink to the back and hope nobody will notice you. And there's evidence that J.R. Kealoha, the Civil War veteran buried in Oahu Cemetery, was not someone who would slink to the back. This is the final plate resting place of J.R. Kealoha, Private, U.S. Color Troops, 41st Regiment of Infantry. Eric Muller is the Living History Coordinator for the Hawaii Civil War Roundtable. He's a Civil War reenactor. And he's standing at Oahu Cemetery, sweating, in a blue wool uniform. This is my way of giving back to my community. Kealoha's regiment, the 41st United States Colored Infantry Regiment, was an influential and important group. He joined a regiment that was recruited largely out of the free black community of Philadelphia. And all of the officers in the regiment were recruited based on their combat record and the fact they were committed abolitionists. Muller says the fact that Kealoha served in this particular regiment means Kealoha joined because he believed in the cause. He would not have been accepted into a community 
an elite community of free blacks unless he had some affinity or connection with them. The 41st engaged in brutal trench warfare and fought in the Siege of Petersburg and Appomattox Campaign. And records show Kealoha and his regiment were present at the historic surrender of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. But finding out what happened to Kealoha after that momentous day took years. Luckily, Kealoha's burial location was noted down by a veterans council. But then, the records were stuck away in a rusty drawer in the state archives. It probably hadn't seen the light of day for years, until Anita Manning was browsing the files one day. I nearly fell over. It said where he was buried. And it gave the plot number and everything, and I was so excited. I threw everything down, rushed out, and gave up my parking meter money and (laughs) ran up to the Oahu Cemetery. I go rushing into the office, found a map of that part of the cemetery, and I thought a little oddly told me some you know, look for this tree and a fence and stuff. And I thought, gee, that's funny. Wouldn't I just go look for his headstone? So, of course, I get over there and the whole place is empty. There's no headstones for anybody in that area. Anita and other historians like Nanette campaigned to turn that empty patch of grass into a place for reflection and reverence. Local veterans groups, historical societies, and Hawaiian civics clubs joined forces to erect the gravestone. We did a fundraising thing and we raised money and had a, a big ceremony, a dedication ceremony, uh, at the gravesite with a new marker in place. The Royal Hawaiian Band was there and played Civil War music, and the Civil War Roundtable did a uh, musket salute. So it was a big deal, and we had, uh, oh gosh, about 100 people come. America's Civil War had huge impacts on the Kingdom of Hawaii. Plantation owners brought workers in from China, Japan, Korea, and the Philippines. And critics at the time likened the working conditions of these new immigrants to slavery. While Native Hawaiian veterans watched as the southern plantation system transformed their homeland, the South was undergoing a transformation of its own. The Reconstruction era was supposed to be one of hope and new opportunities for recently freed slaves. But instead, an education system beta-tested in Hawaii was shaping opportunities for people of color in this new America. Hello. Hello. Sorry, I'm running a few minutes late. Beautiful spot out here. Yeah, we like it a lot. It's much better than Oahu, that's for sure. That's Offshore's Jessica Terrell and Gary Okahiro. They're at his home in Keao on the Big Island. Gary's the Hawaiian historian and Yale professor we heard from in episode two. And he went to a missionary school on a plantation right here in Hawaii. Growing up on the sugar plantations of Hawaii, I was schooled into the discipline of plantation life. By that I mean there were owners and there were workers, and I was one of the workers. His parents worked on the plantation while his grandfather tended the home of the plantation manager. The building itself reminded me of um, Gone with the Wind, a southern plantation. And Gary was sent to the Hawaiian Mission Academy. Plantation schools were established to reproduce the labor for the plantations. They did not have 
high aspirations for their children in the schools. Unlike most of his classmates, Gary went on to college and eventually earned his PhD. His research is mainly focused on systems of inequality, which inevitably led him to a man named Samuel Chapman Armstrong, Hawaii's famous Civil War hero. Armstrong would go on to influence the lives of thousands of people in the United States, but he spent his formative years in the Kingdom of Hawaii. He was born on Maui, but he's not native Hawaiian. His parents were white missionaries from Pennsylvania who ran a sugar company and set up schools for native Hawaiian children. But those children had to pay for this education through labor because the Armstrongs believed manual labor would cleanse the children's genes of savagery. Their brand of education was Christianity and civilization. Men and women having particular places within society. Men, Hawaiians, would be trained in mechanical arts, learn how to make tools, furniture, and so forth. Women would train in domestic arts, serving, cooking, cleaning, and so forth. The food they grew financed the school and the lives of missionaries far from their families on the American East Coast. Parents complained about that, that our kids are spending more time tending to cattle than to their books. That's why Armstrong didn't attend a school run by his father. He went to an academically rigorous school with other white children. And like other missionaries, he was an abolitionist. After his father's death, he moved to Massachusetts, and when the war broke out, he signed up for the Union Army and volunteered to lead a battalion of colored troops, which was a dangerous thing to do. If a Union general leading a colored battalion was captured, he'd be executed on the spot. Armstrong earned medals during the war, but his legacy didn't end when the Confederate Army surrendered. I think people are quite complicated. So in many ways, Armstrong was also complicated. He might have had wonderful virtues and so forth, but he also might have done things that are mm, quite detrimental. After the war, Armstrong decided to stay in Virginia, and he exported the missionary school model, which was pioneered by his parents in Hawaii, to the American South. In his own minds, in his own words, he merged the ideas of Hawaiians with African Americans as people in their infancy that needed tutoring to be brought up to the level of civilization and civility. He founded the Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute to teach newly freed slaves to read, write, and work on farms. W.E.B. Dubois, the famous civil rights advocate and poet, said these segregated schools were hurting the development of African Americans because it was teaching them how to work with their hands, not think with their minds. He said African Americans should aspire as high as possible. But Hampton wasn't just for African Americans. Native American students from 60 different tribes were forced to go to Hampton. After the Civil War, white American settlers continued their march westward. The American military waged battles with Native American tribes over their land. American troops would go into towns and villages, capture the children, and send them thousands of miles away to Hampton University. In the following decades, the federal government took the Hampton model and founded over 300 boarding schools for Native Americans, 
which expanded Armstrong's legacy far beyond Hawaii's shores. His brand of education retarded the development of African Americans and American Indians, definitely. Because the main goal of these schools was to create efficient Christian workers, not scholars, politicians, businessmen, or leaders. It was a continuation of American imperialism into the West, which people in Hawaii already understood. And if we were to look at U.S. history from the perspective of Hawaiian history, we understand that the United States is in Hawaii because it is an imperial power. Now that's a fundamentally different view of United States history. That view from this shore to the so-called mainland can be reseen or remade through this view from this side looking there. Kealoha and Armstrong had very different experiences in America. But the crazy thing is that their paths crossed in Virginia. Remember that missionary letter Nanette found at the beginning of the episode? Well, that was actually from Armstrong, describing his experience meeting Kealoha in 1865. Two men from Hawaii with very different backgrounds having a conversation in Hawaiian, some 5,000 miles away from the islands. But after the war, Armstrong gained recognition, riches, and lived a life of influence, while Kealoha died in obscurity. Which is why it was so important to local historians that Kealoha be given a gravestone, that his burial place be marked and remembered. What I say to people is, he is still serving because he's representing all those men that we don't know where they're buried who worked and, and served and risked their lives. We can tell that story with a physical presence that people can come to and gather at and remember all those men. So Private Kaloha is still in service. <laughs> You've been listening to Offshore, Stories from Hawaii. I'm Ku'uka'uanoe. After the overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom in 1893, hundreds of disenfranchised Hawaiian musicians would journey to the continental U.S. in search of fame, fortune, or just a chance to make a decent living. Some would die in poverty and obscurity. Others would change American music forever. That's next on Offshore. We'd like to give a special thanks to Nanette Napoleon, whose research helped a lot with this episode. She's actually writing a book titled Hawaii Sons of the Civil War, so keep an eye out for that. Offshore is produced by Honolulu Civil Beat, a nonprofit news organization dedicated to building an informed community with news you can trust. You can find other seasons of Offshore at offshorepodcast.org. If you enjoy these episodes and want to talk to us and other offshore listeners, we're holding virtual talk story sessions every week. Sign up at offshorepodcast.eventbrite.com or email us at producer at offshorepodcast.org. Offshore's executive producer is Patty Epler. This episode was produced by Claire Caulfield. 
Reporting for this episode came from Jessica Terrell and me, Ku'u Ka'uanoe. Offshore's producer is April Estrelon, and our engineer this season is Jackie Sojiko. And if you're looking for another podcast, check out How to Talk to Mommy and Poppy About Anything from our friends over at Lantigua Williams & Co. Hi, everybody. I'm Juleika Lantigua Williams, host of the new podcast, How to Talk to Mommy and Papi About Anything. My friends make this show, and they thought you'd enjoy mine too. So, on How to Talk to Mommy and Papi About Anything, I'll introduce an adult child of immigrant parents who's having difficult conversations with their parents. Things like how to spend money or raise kids, how to plan for the future. The list is really endless. But we'll get some help too. From pros who navigate these and other heavy topics with their clients. By the end of each episode, we'll have new skills and ideas to add to our own toolkit. Thanks for listening and subscribing to How to Talk to Mommy and Poppy About Anything wherever you listen to this and your other favorite podcasts.